Section five of History of Egypt, Volume two by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter one The Political Constitution of Egypt, Part five. The task of those set over the jewels was no easy one, when we consider the enormous variety of necklaces, bracelets, rings, earrings, and sceptres of rich workmanship which ceremonial costume required for particular times and occasions. The guardianship of the crown almost approached to the dignity of the priesthood, for was not the uraeus which ornamented each one a living goddess? The queen required numerous waiting-women, and the same ample number of attendants were to be encountered in the establishments of the other ladies of the harem. Troops of musicians, singers, dancers, and almas whiled away the tedious hours, supplemented by buffoons and dwarves. The great Egyptian lords evinced a curious liking for these unfortunate beings, and amused themselves by getting together the ugliest and most deformed creatures. They are often represented on the tombs beside their masters in company with his pet dog, or a gazelle, or with a monkey which they sometimes hold in a leash, or sometimes are engaged in teasing. Sometimes the pharaoh bestowed his friendship on his dwarves, and confided to them occupations in his household. One of them, Kunumhotpu, died superintendent of the royal linen. The staff of servants required for supplying the table exceeded all the others in number. It could scarcely be otherwise if we consider that the master had to provide food, not only for his regular servants, but for all those of his employees and subjects whose business brought them to the royal residence, even those poor wretches who came to complain to him of some more or less imaginary grievance were fed at his expense while awaiting his judicial verdict. Head cooks, butlers, pantlers, pastry cooks, fishmongers, game or fruit dealers, if all enumerated would be endless. The bakers who baked the ordinary bread were not to be confounded with those who manufactured biscuits. The makers of pancakes and doughnuts took precedence of the cake bakers, and those who concocted delicate fruit preserves ranked higher than the common dryer of dates. If one had held a post in the royal household, however low the occupation, it was something to be proud of all one's life, and after death to boast of in one's epitaph. The chiefs to whom this army of servants rendered obedience at times rose from the ranks. On some occasion their master had noticed them in a crowd, and had transferred them, some by a single promotion, others by slow degrees, to the highest offices of the state. Many among them, however, belonged to old families, and held positions in the palace which their fathers and grandfathers had occupied before them, some were members of the provincial nobility, distant descendants of former royal princes and princesses, more or less nearly related to the reigning sovereign. They had been sought out to be the companions of his education and of his pastime. While he was still living an obscure life in the house of the children, he had grown up with them and had kept them about his person as his sole friends and counsellors. He lavished titles and offices upon them by the dozen, according to the confidence he felt in their capacity, or to the amount of faithfulness with which he credited them. A few of the most favoured were called masters of the secret of the royal house. They knew all the innermost recesses of the palace, all the passwords needed in going from one part of it to another, the place where the royal treasures were kept, and the modes of access to it. Several of them were masters of the secret of all the royal words, and had authority over the high courtiers of the palace, which gave them the power of banishing whom they pleased from the person of the sovereign. Upon others devolved the task of arranging his amusements. They rejoiced the heart of his majesty by pleasant songs, while the chiefs of the sailors and soldiers kept watch over his safety. 
To these active services were attached honorary privileges which were highly esteemed, such as the right to retain their sandals in the palace, while the general crowd of courtiers could only enter unshod, that of kissing the knees and not the feet of the good god, and that of wearing the panther's skin. Among those who enjoyed these distinctions were the physician of the king, chaplains, and men of the role, Kri Habi. The latter did not confine themselves to the task of guiding Pharaoh through the intricacies of ritual, nor to that of prompting him with the necessary formulas needed to make the sacrifice efficacious. They were styled masters of the secrets of heaven, those who see what is in the firmament, on the earth and in Hades, those who know all the charms of the soothsayers, prophets, or magicians. The laws relating to the government of the seasons and the stars presented no mysteries to them. Neither were they ignorant of the months, days, or hours propitious to the undertakings of everyday life, or to the starting out on an expedition, nor of those times during which any action was dangerous. They drew their inspirations from the books of magic written by thought, which taught them the art of interpreting dreams or of curing the sick, or of invoking and obliging the gods to assist them, and of arresting or hastening the progress of the sun on the celestial ocean. Some are mentioned as being able to divide the waters at their will, and to cause them to return to their natural place, merely by means of a short formula. An image of a man or animal made by them out of enchanted wax was imbued with life at their command, and became an irresistible instrument of their wrath. Popular stories reveal them to us at work. Is it true, said Cheops to one of them, that thou canst replace a head which has been cut off? On his admitting that he could do so, Pharaoh immediately desired to test his power. Bring me a prisoner from prison, and let him be slain. The magician at this proposal exclaimed, Nay, nay, not a man, sire, my master, do not command that this sin should be committed. A fine animal will suffice. A goose was brought. Its head was cut off, and the body was placed on the right side, and the head of the goose on the left side of the hall. He recited what he recited from his book of magic— the goose began to hop forward, the head moved on to it, and when both were united the goose began to cackle. A pelican was introduced and underwent the same process. His majesty then caused a bull to be brought forward, and its head was smitten to the ground. The magician recited what he recited from his book of magic. The bull at once arose, and he replaced on it what had fallen to the earth. The great lords themselves deigned to become initiated into the occult sciences, and were invested with these formidable powers. A prince who practised magic would enjoy amongst us nowadays but small esteem. In Egypt sorcery was not considered incompatible with royalty, and the magicians of Pharaoh often took Pharaoh himself as their pupil. Such were the king's household, the people about his person, and those attached to the service of his family. His capital sheltered a still greater number of officials and functionaries, who were charged with the administration of his fortune, that is to say, what he possessed in Egypt. In theory it was always supposed that the whole of the soil belonged to him, but that he and his predecessors had diverted and parcelled off such an amount of it for the benefit of their favourites, or for the hereditary lords, that only half of the actual territory remained under his immediate control. He governed most of the nomes of the delta in person. Beyond the Fayum he merely retained isolated lands, enclosed in the middle of feudal principalities, and often at a considerable distance from each other. The extent of the royal domain varied with different dynasties, and even from reign to reign. 
if it sometimes decreased, owing to too frequently repeated concessions, its losses were generally amply compensated by the confiscation of certain fiefs, or by their lapsing to the crown. The domain was always of sufficient extent to oblige the pharaoh to confide the larger portion of it to officials of various kinds, and to farm merely a small remainder of the royal slaves. In the latter case he reserved for himself all the profits, but at the expense of all the annoyance and all the outlay. In the former he obtained without any risk the annual dues, the amount of which was fixed on the spot, according to the resources of the nome. In order to understand the manner in which the government of Egypt was conducted, we should never forget that the world was still ignorant of the use of money, and that gold, silver, and copper, however abundant we may suppose them to have been, were merely articles of exchange, like the most common products of the Egyptian soil. Pharaoh was not then, as the state is with us, a treasurer who calculates the total of his receipts and expenses in ready money, banks his revenue in specie occupying but little space, and settles his accounts from the same source. His fiscal receipts were in kind, and it was in kind that he remunerated his servants for their labor, cattle, cereals, fermented drinks, oils, stuffs, common or precious metals, all that the heavens give, all that the earth produces, all that the Nile brings from its mysterious sources, constituted the coinage in which his subjects paid him their contributions, and which he passed on to his vassals by way of salary. One room, a few feet square, and if need be, one safe, would easily contain the entire revenue of one of our modern empires. The largest of our emporiums would not always have sufficed to hold the mass of incongruous objects which represented the returns of a single Egyptian province. As the products in which the tax was paid took various forms, it was necessary to have an infinite variety of special agents in suitable places to receive it, herdsmen and sheds for the oxen, measurers and granaries for the grain, butlers and cellarers for the wine, beer, and oils. The product of the tax, while awaiting redistribution, could only be kept from deteriorating in value by incessant labor in which a score of different classes of clerks and workmen in the service of the treasury all took part, according to their trades. If the tax were received in oxen, it was led to pasturage, or at times, when a murrain threatened to destroy it, to the slaughterhouse and the courier. If it were in corn, it was bolted, ground to flour, and made into bread and pastry. If it were in stuffs, it was washed, ironed, and folded, to be retained as garments or in the piece. The royal treasury partook of the character of the farm, the warehouse, and the manufactory. Each of the departments which helped to swell its contents occupied within the palace enclosure a building or group of buildings which was called its house, or, as we should say, its storehouse. There was the white storehouse, where the stuffs and jewels were kept, and at times the wine, the storehouse of the oxen, the gold storehouse, the storehouse for preserved fruits, the storehouse for grain, the storehouse for liquors, and ten other storehouses of the application of which we are not always sure. In the storehouse of weapons, or armory, were ranged thousands of clubs, maces, pikes, daggers, bows, and bundles of arrows, which Pharaoh distributed to his recruits whenever a war forced him to call out his army, and which were again warehoused after the campaign. The storehouses were further subdivided into rooms or store chambers, each reserved for its own category of objects. It would be difficult to enumerate the number of store chambers in the outbuildings of the storehouse of provisions, store chambers for butcher's meat, 
for fruits, for beer, bread, and wine, in which were deposited as much of each article of food as would be required by the court for some days, or at most a few weeks. They were brought there from the larger storehouses, the wines from vaults, the oxen from their stalls, the corn from the granaries. The latter were vast brick-built receptacles, ten or more in a row, circular in shape and surmounted by cupolas, but having no communication with each other. They had only two openings, one at the top for pouring in the grain, another at the ground level for drawing it out. A notice posted up outside, often on the shutter which closed the chamber, indicated the character and quantity of the cereals within. For the security and management of these, there were employed troops of porters, storekeepers, accountants, primates, who superintended the works, record-keepers and directors. Great nobles coveted the administration of the storehouses, and even the sons of kings did not think it derogatory to their dignity to be entitled directors of the granaries, or directors of the armory. There was no law against pluralists, and more than one of them boasts on his tomb of having held simultaneously five or six offices. These storehouses participated, like all the other dependencies of the crown, in that duality which characterized the person of the pharaoh. They would be called, in common parlance, the storehouse or the double white storehouse, the storehouse or the double gold storehouse, the double warehouse, the double granary. End of section 5 Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.